Hey, good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. In today's show, I'm going to be talking about business email compromise and how to deal with it and how that relates to other proactive security management issues, such as like eliminating the use of passwords and password storage in browsers, the necessity of session management, and a variety of related topics. So let's get started on it. There are a slew of attacks that have led to breaches at organizations that are, um, these attacks are associated with basically hijacking either sessions in a browser or hijacking the and downloading and grabbing all of the passwords that a user has stored in their browser. So let's first think on, let's understand that particular issue and then see how possibly that could turn into a business email compromise thing with uh, with session issues. Okay. So let's imagine your company allows your staff to log into a web browser like Chrome using a personal Gmail account. And when they do that, then the settings that are in Chrome that are associated with that personal Gmail account, those pull over and synchronize with that Chrome browser. So even in the context that you have a policy on your company managed computers that makes it so that those settings to disable the ability for the browser to store passwords, well, that doesn't stop any passwords that were stored on a personal computer at home from getting synchronized with that browser instance. Go ahead, give it a try if you don't believe me. But I've seen this a bunch of times. And so this is one of the areas where you, know, you can have all the technical controls in the world, but you have to have end user cybersecurity awareness training. You have to have company policies that are telling staff, you know, hey, this is, this is your work computer. Don't log into your work computer with personal identities. If you want to look at your personal email at work, don't use your work computer for that. Use your smartphone. Like, hey, we let you use your smartphone in the office. We give you a guest wireless to connect your smartphone to, right? Check your personal email on your personal smartphone. Don't check your email, your personal email on your work computer. Okay, this needs to be a company policy. So I've seen this repeatedly where a company doesn't have that policy in place and they don't have that end user training in place. And as a result, you know, a user goes and logs into their Chrome or Firefox or whatever other browser with a personal account. And that personal account at home was configured with the defaults and the defaults are to store passwords and to synchronize them with that account. So wherever that account logs in, whoosh, those credentials get synchronized. Now this, by the way, was actually the mechanism whereby Cisco got hacked recently within the last six months. 
in that instance, here's what happened. The, the gentleman who was the source of the breach vector at Cisco had fairly high level access. And this is exactly one of the reasons why you need to have role-based training in your organization. You know, IT people that have high-level privileged access really need to be going through much more extensive training. Um, people who are managers need to be going through much more extensive training. And people who are uh, finance and accounting or HR, you know, basically anybody that has privileged access needs to be going through more extensive training because information security risk management is everybody's job at a company. And it's not an IT problem. It's an everybody problem. So training and communicating these things have to be very important. It has to be a priority in that organization. So back to the Cisco breach, what happened was that this gentleman had logged into his work computer with, or his, was it his home computer? I think it, maybe he logged, anyways, he, he logged in, he had this like cross-pollination of accounts. And ultimately what happened is that his, his business credentials got associated and synchronized in a browser where his personal credentials also were. And so then when he was at home on his home computer, he's thinking he's just doing home stuff. However, the Cisco resources credentials had been stored and associated in the browser and synchronized with his personal account. And as a result, his home computer didn't have the same levels of protections as his office computers, which is pretty much standard across the board for every organization. And so then his home computer ended up being the breach factor for um, the compromise of Cisco business credentials, okay? So your company, what can you do about this? You need to have a policy that mandates the use of a company-owned password manager. You have to have an inventory of all of the assets that staff are logging into. I mean, you know, everybody on the face of this planet who has any sort of a digital identity understands that you need to have multi-factor authentication enforced everywhere. But who actually has multi-factor authentication enforced everywhere? Nobody. That's the answer. Nobody. Well, how can you even start on the journey to get everything multi-factor authentication enforced? And which, by the way, I'm not going to go into excruciating detail in MFA here, but TOTP and SMS and, and you know, hardware token authentication, those are not the only methods for MFA. You know, IP access control restrictions and, you know, a variety of other things such as like geolocation, you know, who you are, what you have, um, where are you at, you know, location. A lot of these things contribute to a, you know, a multi-factor authentication approach. So TOTP is not the only way to do MFA. So if you're going to lock down access to resources, you need to have an inventory of the resources, right? And, and this is literally a fundamental problem that a significant percentage of organizations have not solved yet. You know, security 101 is inventory 101. You can't secure 
what you don't have solid inventory for. So now this goes back into a procurement policy. Does your organization have a procurement policy that states that no one in the organization is able to sign up for SaaS platforms, you know, or to procure technology without the sign off from, you know, the CISO basically. And, and I'm going to go so far as to say, look, it's not really good enough that you just simply request of this from the IT department, because unless that person in the IT department is responsible for that asset inventory for the purposes of SBOM analysis, supply chain risk management, third-party information security risk management, and a variety of other factors, then that's not the right person in the IT department to even be sending that request to. Your organization needs to have a procurement policy with regards to technology and services and SaaS subscriptions and so forth, right? It, you cannot be allowing anybody with a credit card to just go sign up for a service and buy it. And this is prudent anyways, from a perspective of just eliminating duplicate, dupli you know, I'm not going to say um, it, duplicitousness because that's a wrong word, but duplication. Uh, and I've seen this happen in many cases, you know, like, let's say the IT department already has a a policy management and policy distribution system for the organization, because that's typically included in a cybersecurity awareness training program. But then I, HR is like, well, we need to have a, a policy management platform. So then they go out and buy one that's totally separate when the organization already had one. And this is very typical of what happens when an organization does not have a procurement policy is you just end up lighting up money on fire on top of creating security problems too. Okay, so enough about that. Please understand that you cannot save passwords in browsers, okay? You can't do it. If you have any passwords stored in browsers at this point in time, you need to get out there and first off, disable that functionality, and secondly, delete all of the entries that are there because the bad guys are going after that stuff and harvesting it. Now, if you use a really high quality company sponsored password manager application, you can adopt that password manager application and use it to import all of the browser stored credentials and then go into the browser and delete those stored credentials that are in the browser. Now you've actually got secure storage. Now let's just address company-owned password managers for a moment. There's, there are some really high-quality platforms out there. There's only two that I really believe in at this point in time. And the really good ones offer, as part of a business subscription, a personal use right for your employees. So if an organization has a company-owned password manager, then ideally that password manager would also have a personal use right option for that software. And that doesn't mean that your employees put their personal passwords in your company password manager. No, you definitely don't want them doing that. The use right is where through them having a business account, they can send an invitation to create a personal account to their own personal email address, and then they can utilize that platform and that product at home. And now you've got secure storage for employees for their personal 
passwords at home. You've got secure storage for their credentials. You know, at work, this also helps you from a business continuity perspective because you now have uh, inventory over what it is that they were accessing and you can uh, get an inventory of whether or not TOTP, you know, MFA is, is on in various accounts when you start actually having an inventory. If you don't have an inventory, well, you can forget about any approach whereby you're actually validating that MFA is, is in, you know, enforced because you don't even have the inventory, right? We're going back to the whole uh, asset inventory 101 is security 101. So how does this relate to business email compromise? Well, remember I was telling you about how the malware likes to like load up and it grabs the stuff that's in that browser? Okay, there are sessions that exist in browsers too. And those sessions are almost like premise Kerberos tokens. You know, they're not, not the exact same thing. But so if, if one of your staff goes and visits a malicious website that's delivering some malicious code, it is actually possible that that malware can steal the token that is active in that browser and then do something like uh, register an additional MFA option for the account. Yeah, I'm serious. I've seen this. <laughs> You'd be like, whoa, wait a second here. I thought we had the we I thought we had MFA on the accounts. Doesn't that prevent the bad guys from elsewhere getting into the account? Well, for the most part, yes, but by itself, that isn't really good enough. So this is why things like conditional access exist. You need to have GOIP blocking protections in place, protections against, you know, impossible travel situations. The, the restriction of the enrollment of other MFA methods would be a really prudent course of action. So one of the things that exists, if we just pick on Office 365 for a moment, Office 365 now has uh, Microsoft Authenticator push notifications that have location information as well as a unique number. And that then, that number is presented to the end user's MFA, their Microsoft Authenticator app. And it'll say like, oh, the number for this authentication is 80. And that number is displayed on the authentication screen at, that is on the web browser on the PC, for example. And then that number has to be typed into the multi-factor authentication push notification in Microsoft Authenticator on the person's smartphone. So if those numbers don't match up, well, then that MFA validation is going to fail. So that is part of that concept that's talking about you know, sessions, which session is it? Is this actually the session that's being attempted to be validated? And then is from a geolocation perspective, you know, it's this is a matter of the technical controls on the server side, but also giving the end user the ability to validate for themselves, like, yeah, that is actually me doing that, not an unauthorized party. So for those out there that don't have Office 365 locked down to eliminate something like Windows Hello enrollment as an MFA mechanism, you may want to consider that because I've actually seen that where Windows Hello enrollment as an allowed MFA mechanism 
was uh, was hijacked in a browser session and added by some bad guys. And so even though MFA was enforced on a user account, the bad guys were still able to, you know, grab that person's password through that session hijacked. Um, but then they were able to successfully MFA remotely in an impossible travel situation. Now, had the impossible travel uh, lockdown been in place at that time, then that situation most likely would not have happened. And at least at a minimum, like a risky login notification would have been you know, brought up and hopefully then a, an investigation would have been launched by you know, people who were engaged in that type of monitoring. So, you know, how do we address things like business email compromise? Well, let, let's, you know, push down on that idea a little bit further. Do you have a policy at your company that is telling staff what type of content is appropriate for emails and what is not? Are you, do you have explicit training and policy in your organization that tells all staff there should never be PII stored in email. If it's part of your business process that PII has to be processed through email, then try to make that a shared mailbox that the end users don't actually like, you know, directly log into. And then also make sure that you set a retention policy for that. Because if you set up a retention policy that says, okay, fine, we're going to process this stuff and we're going to retain it for 30 days, and then you have an automatic retention policy in that mailbox or on those folders or on that data in terms of how it's classified, then after 30 days, well, that stuff gets auto-whacked. Bye-bye to that content. Inherently, by doing that, you're drastically reducing the attack surface you're also drastically reducing the volume of data that the bad guys could gain access to in a actual breach. So, you know, you need to take a serious look at this blend of we have to have policies. Yes, there has to be technical controls with it, but there has to be training, ongoing training. And then now take a look, very deep look at your new employee onboarding processes? Do you have mandatory cybersecurity awareness training? Do you have mandatory policy training? It's one thing to just basically have policies and then to say, yeah, you know, it's your guys' responsibility to read the policies. And then, you know, you need to sign off on the policies. And by signing off on the policies, now you're giving us authority to hold you accountable to that. I find that approach to be problematic because unless a manager is telling the new employee that this training is mandatory, you need to go through this training. You need to read these policies and understand them and conduct yourself in accordance with them and go through training before you ever start doing any actual work. If the manager doesn't have that as the advocation that they are doing for all staff that is new to the organization, then the baseline doesn't exist. And too much of the time, what's happening is that a manager is just saying, hey, you know, here you go. Here's your like 
here's all your stuff. Now let's get to work. And that causes, I think, a pretty substantial risk profile to an organization. So take a deep look, please, at all of your processes. What do you have in terms of policies? Are they adequate? Are they detailed enough? How are you getting the content of those policies back into the visible flight path of all staff every year at least? What are you doing in terms of assessing the risk of people in accordance with those policies? If we take a look at this, um, the whole thing that email is not a file server. Is IT running checks against the sizes of mailboxes? Because if you have people that have like a 40 gigabyte mailbox, that's ridiculous. Then somebody is turning that email mailbox into a file server. There's no legitimate justification for a, you know, 35, 40 gigabyte mailbox. I've even got a hard time with something with saying that, you know, a 25 gig mailbox is, is legit. If you're using email as a file server, it will get pretty big. There are other legit reasons to not use email as a file server. Every, you know, just two things off the top of my head. One is that there's an upper limit at what the quantity of email data is that is practical, that's practically available in terms of being able to synchronize with a desktop client. You know, there is a practical upper limit to that. And at some point in time, beyond like 25 gigabytes, it's really not practical to synchronize all of that locally. And if it isn't getting synchronized locally, then the end user doesn't actually have a perception that some of that data is there. Sure, they could go to Exchange Online and access all of the stuff, but you're not helping them do proper email management if you're only showing in their Outlook desktop client the last year or three years of data, you know they, they need to basically be able to see all of it or they can't actually manage it effectively, at least not without going through Exchange Online, you know, OWA. So that, that's one primary issue is that if that mailbox is too large, there's a practical upper limit for local synchronization of the entire mailbox. And generally, I've seen where anything over 25 gig, it doesn't really practically synchronize locally. It's, it's a fail sandwich at that. The, now, the other huge, enormous reason that you can use to persuade your end users to not do this stuff, um, to not use email as a file server, is that if they actually care about that data, they won't store it in email. Email is inherently a synchronized database system. So especially if we're talking about Exchange Online and Outlook desktop client, that is a synchronization process of what is in effect a database. And all you have to do in order to believe me that this can lead to data loss because of synchronization failures is just in your Outlook client, go over to the all folders view and then scroll down to the sync issues area you're going to see a ton of synchronization issues all the time. It's inevitable. It's just going to happen. And data synchronization issues can definitely lead to data loss, data corruption.
So if you have staff that are saving up all of this stuff in email because they care about it, because they want it, it shouldn't be an email. All those attachments that they care about, you know, is it contracts? Is it sales orders? Is it new user onboarding? Whatever the heck it is. If it's attachments that they actually care about, it shouldn't be an email anyways, because by doing attachments and storing attachments in an email, it's going to make the email mailbox large. It's a larger breach vector opportunity for the bad guys, because now those attachment concept content is leaked potentially. Uh, and then potential data loss as well, because the larger the mailbox, the more difficult it is to actually synchronize it. So if you're going to do risk management for business email compromise, you've got to stop the mechanisms whereby the bad guys can actually get that credential for the mailbox. And then if they do get the credential, your MFA protections, your conditional access protections, you know, impossible travel, um, allowing your mailboxes to only be accessible on Microsoft Endpoint Manager devices that, you know, enrolled devices, you know, basically company-owned assets. You know, there's a variety of things you can and should be doing in order to prevent the bad guys from doing unauthorized access into content. And now in the case of a business email compromise, you need to be very concerned about assessing what was impacted. So does that mean get an extract of the whole mailbox? Probably. Does that mean talking to the end user about, hey, do you store PII here? Where is there? Is there any PII in your mailbox that you're aware of? Okay, if there is, where do you store it? Get an extract of that. Assess the record count. Assess the type of data. Assess the impacted audience. So that's part of your post-incident response. I would also argue that you need to have a, a business email compromise response playbook pre-established. So if you don't have that, get it in place. You know, how are you going to handle that? What is, what are you doing in terms of communicating to all staff at the company how they should conduct themselves whenever they have a perceived incident? And then if your IT department has escalation support with any other vendor, what is their process? What do they escalate? How do they escalate? How is it coded between internal IT and the external vendor? you know, in terms of like the conveyance of the severity of the issue. Okay, who's then the incident commander? If you don't have that figured out in advance, uh, you got a problem. You need to know who your incident commander is. And I would argue that in the vast majority of cases, your VCSO should be the incident commander. And if your CISO is not technically adept enough to be the incident commander, then you may have the wrong CISO. So... <sighs> This is uh, just a great recap of a plethora of correlated items that need to be handled and locked down and communicated in an organization in order to have a viable information security risk management program just looking at business email compromise. Right? How do we prevent BEC? 
Well, we have to use a company password manager. We have to have policies, cybersecurity awareness training, end user education awareness training, just in terms of how do we, you know, what are we storing in terms of email? We need a data classification policy, a data retention policy, the technical controls that are associated with that. You need a ransomware response playbook, a BEC response playbook, a designated incident commander, a designated VCSO. Uh, end users need to be trained on incident response themselves, right? Uh, just, I could go on and on, but please see, see all of the correlated items. So hopefully what you're seeing with that is that information security risk management is everyone's problem. It's not an IT problem. So if the, if the culture of your organization is one in which end users do not understand that information security risk management is, is equally their problem as the IT department, then I think that's a management problem. You know, and if management is not pushing the policies, then again, that's a management problem. I've seen it too many times in organizations where managers say that, oh, well, that's an IT problem. N no, no, it's not. It's a management problem. And in many cases, it's an HR management problem. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening.